John and his friend Eddie are getting fitted for suits at a tailor's in Koreatown. This guy Eddie was the craziest, pumped up meat bag of a guy straight out of the tanning salon on the way to the bar, always looking for some kind of action. And he was John Stone's business manager, slash confidant, slash bad influence. And yes, we said was, because John's dead and so was Eddie. I fucking saw one, you know. I mean, I was taken. What? Johnny, I was taken by little green alien fuckheads. Eddie's eyes widen, and he is serious as a heart attack right now. I was with this chick in New Mexico. Fucking Roswell. Fucking Area 51. We weren't too far from all that. Yeah. Okay, now, I don't play with them anymore, but I was dropping roofies all the time, giving them to girls. You know, party favors. Whoa, Eddie. You dog. So one night, me and my girl were fighting at a hotel. I leave. I go to the bar. I meet this fly honey. I drop the inner drink. Nothing happens. New Mexico, man. That place is electric. Things are wired differently there. So what'd you do? I walk her home, and somewhere in there, it was just unbelievable, man. The lights, the little green man, three of them. It was like a fucking movie or something. At first, I thought it could have been the coke or the ketamine, but nah... I've done those things a thousand times before. This was different, Johnny. You were doing coke and ketamine? Johnny, they were aliens. They took me up in their fucking ship. It was wild, man. I woke up half naked in my apartment. I think they probed my ass or something. Holy shit. I don't remember that part, but there was some kind of space gel on my ass. Swear to fucking God, Johnny. Wow, Eddie. Just wow. The... Fly Honey Eddie met was a dude. The person switched drinks with Eddie. He took the roofie, and then this dude and their friends had their way with Eddie. But hey, aliens might have been watching. You ever seen aliens before? Yeah, uh, one, two, and three. Well, it seems just like the cartoon Roadrunner and Coyote... Aliens love the desert. Which desert's near L.A.? Well, if you manage to get past the crackheads and street girls, you might see the zombies and cult members handing out pamphlets. I'd say hit your right east through the urban sprawl, you'd pass West Covina, Ontario, then head north on the 15 towards Devore. Climb through the mountain pass until you hit the high desert, at which point you're a straight shot to Barstow, and then you're almost there. You're almost at the Mojave. And that's like another world. Compared to LA, it might as well be Mars. Mojave Desert actually has several mountain ranges. Its greater area includes cities like Las Vegas, Lancaster, and Victorville too. But the real deserty part, uninhabited, just cacti and sunshine, you know, that's about three hours from LA. We now know Rachel as an LA citizen, but Rachel didn't grow up there. She grew up in Fresno. 
One year, when she was about nine or ten, her dad decided to take her down to see the real desert, the Mojave Preserve, on a camping trip. Young Rachel and her dad are sitting on a kind of small cliff, looking out at the skies not far from their campsite. Oh, it's good to be away from all those big city lights. See a little clearer. Beautiful skies, huh, honey? Rachel's dad says. Yes, Dad, it's beautiful. The sheer size of it never ceases to amaze me. You think we'll see anything, Dad? I hope so, honey. But you never know. They've got all that space up there to play around with. They could be anywhere. The aliens? Oh, yeah. And no one really knows how many are out there. Rachel's dad flinches and flicks a small scorpion away from his finger. Little devil. You know, Dad, when I tried to tell Jennifer about UFOs, she laughed at me. <laughs> Rachel, you gotta understand. People don't know any better. It might seem silly to them, but that doesn't mean it is. But do you think they are really out there? Oh, no doubt about it. You see, humans like us, we're small. We're just little babies in a big, big universe. We've only been walking around a few hundred thousand years. Only been flying planes and driving cars a very short time. Yeah. But the aliens, they've been around for millions of years. They've had time to evolve. That means grow. You know what I mean, Rach? Yes, Dad. They're more advanced than us. See, we live our lives out here and do the best we can. But someday, they'll come for us. Help us be better people. He notices the confused look on Rachel's face. I know it can be hard to understand, especially at your age. Rachel's dad looks up higher in the sky. He puts a pair of binoculars to his eyes. Well, wait a minute. Rachel and her dad stare intently at an area of the sky, then start looking further out. Eventually, they lower their heads again. Who? Had a feeling about that one. Remember what I told you about the past? A long time ago? You mean, how the aliens made us? Well, they helped us, honey. Helped us get to where we are now. And they're going to come back for us. But only for some of us. They can't take everyone, can they? No, they can't. But you don't have to worry about all that. Not just yet. Just know that if one of your classmates laughs or makes a joke, it's because they were raised differently. Not everyone can know what we know. He gives her a wink. Okay, Dad. I like our little camping trips. How about you, Rachel? Me too, Dad. You hungry? Starving. What do you say we go cook up some hot dogs? Yes! Rachel and her dad head back down a small trail towards their campsite. Rachel swore she saw a big fox disappear over the bank. Or maybe it was a small coyote. Back in LA, grown-up Rachel is waiting for her turn to audition, along with a bunch of other actresses. There's a TV on the corner with local news playing. Rachel looks around the room at the other women who have shown up for the casting call. They're all blonde, rather busty, 
and seemed to be staring indirectly at Rachel for some reason. Jeez, it's like a Sharon Stone convention in here. How many gallons of bleach are sitting in this room right now? Well, maybe blonde is the way to go. I'm sure it would look okay on me, and besides, no one in the entire room was actually a natural blonde. Ah, just seems like so much maintenance. Stacy says that if you don't pay to have it done right, it'll look green in a couple weeks. Not to mention that I don't have any money right now. I mean, shit. I have one more month of rent money, and that's it. I can barely afford to eat. What am I going to do? I gotta get a job soon. My dad is going to kill me if I ask for any money. Wait. Are all these girls actually staring at me? Like, for real? God. I swear, the whole room is staring at me right now. I mean, what the hell? What did I ever do to these girls? How could they all be in on it? There is no way they all know each other. What happened to, like, girl power? Wow. Seriously. God, I just hate people sometimes. It'll be fine. It's just a few more minutes, and hopefully they'll call me in. Rachel takes a long stretch and a yawn in her chair. She reaches into her back pocket and pulls out the flyer for the casting call. The flyer reads, Casting call for women's deodorant commercial between 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Blondes preferred. Her eyes widen as she thinks. Oh shit. Oh fuck. I am a complete moron. What am I gonna do? Wait, if I leave now, everyone will know that I know. Shit. This is not good. Damn, how stupid am I? What am I gonna do? Rachel stands up, ready to get out of there. Then an assistant comes in. Rachel? Rachel West? Rachel turns over her shoulder to look back, frozen like a deer in the headlights. Um, yes? The assistant looks her over. Okay, come with me. Rachel follows him down a well-lit hallway. Hanging on the walls are various movie posters, old and new. She's led into a small room. As she enters, she notices two men and one woman an executive type, and a camera. This is Rachel West. Hi, everyone. Hi, Rachel. Do you have a headshot? Rachel reaches into her bag, fumbles for a moment, and hands one to the casting director. Thanks. Have you done any work on set before? Well, not technically, but I was in several low-budget movie projects in high school. Okay, no worries. The second guy next to the casting director starts to chuckle under his breath. He moves his head around to get a closer look at Rachel's hair. Okay, Rachel. We're going to be filming during this audition. Do you mind? No, not at all. That's not a problem. Well, okay then. Go ahead and stand on the X and read the tagline. For all day maximum protection, I use... Hold on. Hold on. I just have to ask, did you happen to read the requirements for this casting call? Well, yes, but I guess I missed the last part. Okay, so you're aware that we're looking for blondes, right? All right, settle down. It's not that big of a deal. Not that big of a deal? Do you remember the lipstick ad? 
Rachel stands before them awkwardly, not sure what to do. Yes, I remember. They wanted a girl 5'7". You chose a girl 5'5". Five, 5'6". Five. Five, she was 5'5". Five, five. Well... The male model was too tall for her. They ended up taping paperbacks to the bottom of her shoes. <sighs> we both know the story. Henry David Thoreau and Jane Austen being stepped on like yesterday's tabloid trash. Okay, okay. The executive woman finally chimes in. To tell you the truth, it really doesn't matter now. And now that I think about it, she sort of has this girl next door thing going on. She might be able to help us reach our core consumer, as long as she can act. Hmm. So what are you saying? Are you good with her? Yeah, I think I am. Well, it's fine with me. Let's wrap this up and we can all be on our merry way. I think we're done. Everyone gets up to leave. Rachel is still standing on the X, not sure exactly what's going on. The casting director turns his head to look back at her. Hey, you got the callback. Do you think you can handle working on set? What? Yes, I can. Does this mean I got the part? We're going to ask you to come back, but we like you for the commercial. We have your info. My assistant will reach out to you with the details. Please see yourself out. Thanks. Rachel walks out of the room, still in shock as she closes the door. She jumps up and down with excitement. She regains her composure, walks down the hallway, takes a deep breath and opens the door to the waiting room, walking through, confident and smiling. When we left Max and Trevor, they were at the Rhino with a package and two gangbangers in front of them asking for it. Where's the package, man? Spider asked again. It's right here. We got it. He points under the table. Everything in there? Listen, can we talk a sec? See, we were thinking... It's fine, man. Max, nervous at the sight of seriously intense gangbangers, interrupts him. Forget it. No. No, it's not okay. We went in there. We took care of that shit. Now you want everything? Puppet doesn't bat an eye. He calmly replies, Guys, I'm having trouble hearing you. Let's go into the bathroom for a minute. I don't want to let any of these fools hear too much. It's late at night, and a drunken John Stone is leaving Stacy's apartment. Hmm. Could he be drunk on Strawbridge Wines? Well, matter of fact, I am. That's our sponsor this week. Chalky asphalt. Unripe melon. Unctuous cigar box charcoal with fruity notes. Hi, I'm Walter Strawbridge. And these are just a few of the many notes in the symphony of deliciousness you'll find in each and every Strawbridge wine. If you're looking for funky barnyard flavors, 
try our legendary cedar bottom Chardonnay? How about something more structured, something plummy, mossy even, with hints of eucalyptus and tar? You've got to try our roll in the hay Cabernet. And if you need to get out of the hustle and bustle for a while, come and see us over in Malibu, where our tasting room is open seven days a week. Strawbridge Wines, we honor the grape. A drunken John Stone is leaving Stacy's apartment. He finds his car in the street, opens the door, and struggles to put the keys in the ignition. The car finally begins to move. In John's mind, the street in front of him turns into a major raceway, and he's driving a 60s Ford race car, not unlike the one his dad drove way back when. He's decked out in a flame-proof, aluminized racing suit. He approaches a left turn, perfectly leans into it, and speeds full power down a straightaway. A blur of screaming fans passes by in a flash. Back to reality, John, solid drunk, is slowly pulling out of his spot. He picks up a bit of speed and immediately swerves right and drives straight into a streetlight. John looks around confused. What the? He checks his arms and legs to see if they're okay, then sits there in a kind of daze. Sir, a police officer opens his door and shines a flashlight in. John clearly looks drunk as he squints at the cop. What seems to be the problem here? Are you all right, sir? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I just, uh, there's a spot of grease or something, but I haven't done anything wrong. Sir, you've clearly had too much to drink tonight. Are you serious? How could you possibly know that I've been drinking? John leans back in his seat, arms crossed. The officer turns his head to look at the crashed car, the streetlight, and John Stone's drunken bloodshot eyes. I had one, by the way. Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to step outside. I know my rights. I'm a taxpaying citizen, for fuck's sake. I'm not going to ask you again. And if I refuse? Then you'll spend the night downtown. John reluctantly gets out of the car and is given a field sobriety test. He fails and a scuffle ensues as John tries to get back in his car. The police officer punches John in the stomach and throws him to the ground. Within minutes of being in the back seat, John passes out. The next morning, John is awakened by a loud pounding on his cell door. John sits up on the small bed and begins rubbing his bruised wrists. He looks both dazed and confused when the door opens. Come on, get up, let's go, the cell guard says. What am I doing here? You're being released. But? But nothing. Grab your shit and let's go. 
John is led out of his cell, down a long corridor, and through a wrought iron security door. He's handed a clear plastic bag containing a Velcro wallet and a Rolex watch. The cell guard leads him down a hallway to an interrogation room. Sit down. Have some coffee. I thought you said I was being released. Take a seat. Well, I have rights, you know. The sooner your ass is in that seat, the sooner you will be released. John sits there for 30 minutes before a plainclothes officer walks in. Let's call him PCO. He stares at John as he lays a manila envelope on the table and sits down. Good morning, Mr. Stone. Sleep okay? (sighs) You have got to be fucking kidding me right now. I'm friends with the commissioner, and when he finds out about the kind of shit you're pulling, oh, you just fucking wait. John, you won't be talking with any commissioner, so just settle the fuck down. (laughs) Excuse me? You think you can just detain someone against their will? Oh, you're no someone, John. You see, people think you are a local businessman who cares about the community, but I know who you really are. You're John Stone, the biggest piece of shit asshole heroin smuggler in this entire country. I I don't know what you're talking about. PCO hands down a photo. This vehicle was sold last month to a Mr. Ganzetti, was it not? I have no idea. You know how many cars float through my dealerships on a weekly basis? This is your signature on the sales form? Is it not? Well, uh, that that's a standard sales form. PCO hands John another picture. I'm going to cut to the chase, John. You may not have any idea how this car came to be laced with heroin, but I do. You see, we've been watching you for some time. We know of your involvement with the Mexicans and the Italians. We know that your car dealerships play a key role in this operation. You can sit here and deny it all day long, you piece of shit. But it won't stop us bringing this whole thing to a halt. You're going to have to ask yourself, which side do you want to be on? John begins to cry uncontrollably. Not John's finest hour. So we know John Stone did eventually get killed. A burglary in his home gone bad. And in the last episode, we learned how his wife Terry met the same fate. But it's interesting to see how it ended up that way. That's right. So John made this deal with the Italians, and the Mexicans started smuggling drugs in via his four dealerships. When the cars got stateside, the Italians mostly took over. John was making some money, living the dangerous life of crime. There was a little too much. And he went a little overboard on the... John had his wife, Terry, plus a girlfriend on the side, Stacy, and he started getting a big head. The operation wasn't exactly running perfect at that point, but it was John who got a bit cocky and tried to play both sides. The Italians weren't offering the same kickbacks that they used to, so we started talking with the Mexicans. 
He even had the gall to make some type of threat to Vincent on the phone. Now we find John on one of those cool California evenings. His neighbors barbecuing away. Three amigos playing on someone's porch TV. John is in his office quietly talking on the phone. His wife, Terry, is upstairs, about to get in the shower. Listen, I told you not to call me in the evenings unless it was an emergency. That's why I gave you the pager. I know, I know, but I haven't seen you lately, and I was lonely. I understand, honey. I've been really busy. A lot of moving pieces, trying to get some deals pushed through. Did you get the check? I did, thank you. I just thought maybe you'd want to celebrate with me. I got a call back for Seinfeld. I mean, seriously. Stacy was one of Kramer's girlfriends on Seinfeld. Oh, that's great. That's great, Stace. But I can't right now, really. Oh, come on, please. Listen, we talked about this. We have a good thing going right now, but we have to take it easy. I can't just come running at the drop of a hat or else she might get suspicious. That's weird. Listen, I have to go. We'll get together this week. I promise. John hangs up the phone and proceeds to the door. He opens it slightly as Mickey and Ronnie push him away and walk in. John, 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 Mickey says. It's a biblical name, isn't it? Now remember, John's met Mickey and Ronnie before, these Italian thugs. But he doesn't know exactly what these guys are doing barging into his home. It can't be good, though. Oh, he knows. He knows. You don't say something pig-headed to a guy like Vincent and just forget about it. Well, he damn well should know that, but why are they here now, he wonders. Sounds like John is in a bit of a jam. Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. John could use an escape, and so could we. You know, John Stone's dad flew a P-51 Mustang back in the war days, and he found himself in a real tight spot 48 years earlier to the day, January 7, 1948, while stationed in Kentucky. His dad went up with a friend and colleague, Captain Thomas Mantell, and they ended up chasing a UFO. Holy moly! What in the world is that thing? Mantell, do you have the object in view? Stone Pony, I'm chasing him. Watch your speed there, buddy. The object appears to be, well, moving in such a way that... Nothing more was ever heard. Mantell and his Mustang crashed and went down in pursuit of an unidentified flying object. John's dad had to turn back with engine trouble just minutes before that. There are some different opinions as to what actually happened. This was one of those far-reaching stories in the press about UFOs, one of three big ones in 1948. They would later say he was chasing a skyhook balloon, and when he stopped paying attention to his own altitude, he blacked out and crashed. We'll let you be the judge. Whoa! I think I just felt another tremor. 
Sometimes that's a sign of something bigger coming. While I'm about to pop open another delicious Strawbridge wine and think about it. And there you have it, folks. That twinkle in the night sky might very well be our new alien oppressors. Don't forget to tell them where you learned how to survive in L.A. (laughs) 